my brother closest to me in age, his name is Rory, and uh, back in the day when we used to have to walk to school two miles uphill both ways in the snow, all of that, uh, we had to walk past this one particular corner that was sort of a conclave for bullies, and I was always nervous walking by these guys. Uh, I was nervous until Rory started walking with me, Uh, because here's the deal. I'm taller than Rory, but he's meaner than me. And uh, with Rory by my side, I've, I, I've had a bit more courage, quite a bit more brave. I knew that if those bullies started anything, Rory would jump in the middle of it, and then I could run for help <laughs> and come pick up the pieces of Rory from the pavement and uh, go on to school. Um, but having Rory by my side made a difference. Having strength by our side always makes a difference, Always. Uh, The year was 1934, and the couple's name is John and Betty Stam, S-T-A-M, Stam. They were new missionaries in China, had a new baby, a three-month-old daughter named Helen. They were in a rural mountain town that had seen foreigners before but had not had outsiders take up residence among them. John and Betty acquired their language with expertise very quickly, and uh, their presence in this town was already yielding gospel fruit. Uh, One day, they received word, there was a rumor that these roving communist rebels were coming through the town. And by the time they could confirm the rumor, it was too late. Uh, These thugs had come into the town and began to ransack the place. They brought with them death and destruction. And they were so excited when they found John and Betty, these outsiders that they could hold as their own. They burst into the house. Betty was holding their baby. And John, using his excellent language skills, encouraged his captors to have a seat. And then he served them tea. Uh, But this act of kindness was lost on these soldiers. And so when they were done drinking their tea, they had John and Betty stripped to their undergarments And then they tied them up with ropes, and they marched them through the streets of the town. John was barefoot walking. Betty was put on a horse where she held the baby. They were marched from the town they lived in to the next town over by these thugs. And once they were in the next town, they were thrown into a house for that night, not knowing what would come the next day. Uh, Before the sun rose, Betty, in a bit of an act of desperation, took their three-month-old baby, wrapped her in blankets, and hid her in a pile of blankets inside this house. And the soldiers that came that next morning to retrieve John and Betty uh, either didn't know or didn't care that there was supposed to be a baby with them. They were just interested in John and Betty. They drug them out of the house, marched them to the town center, and there in front of terrified onlookers, uh, John and Betty met the sword. How do they do that? Onlookers reported later they didn't die panicky, but serenely. How? It makes a difference when strength is on your side. Whether you are walking to school or walking to your martyrdom, it makes a difference when strength is on your side. Throughout our study of Matthew's account of the passion of Christ, one theme reigns supreme, and that is that Christ is in control. At every step along this journey, Christ is in complete and total control of what's happening. He never loses that control. 
But it's an exercise of his sovereignty throughout every scene that we've studied so far in, in this beautiful story. And here is Christ in complete control, perfect sovereignty, employing his strength and power towards the end of the cross for the sake of our salvation. And the strength and power of Christ are on full display in our passage today. And I just got to believe that if we get this in us, the strength of Christ on our side is going to make a profound difference. Last week, Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane, and and he's an emotional mess. He is disturbed to the point of death. And the reason he's disturbed, you'll remember from our study last week, is not because of the cross. He's set on going to the cross. But rather, what disturbs the soul of Christ is the thought of absorbing the wrath of God. The song the choir just sang spoke of Jesus drinking in full that poisoned cup. That's what disturbed Jesus. His alienation from the Father, his soul recoiled from the sin of mankind. That's what troubled him. He walks into the garden in great emotional distress, but you'll remember, how did he leave the garden? Resolved. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus walks out of that garden resolved. The cross is in his path. He will not be diverted. He's going to go, he will die, and he will conquer death. And that knowledge of what's coming And that knowledge of how this whole story unfolds propels him in the scenes that we study today. For us, our faith experience with the crucified and risen Savior, it colors our response to crisis, threats, fears, worries. I think if we study this passage right today, you and I walk out of here with the resolve of Christ. Christ who went and died in our place, rose from the dead, conquered death, granted salvation by grace through faith, that makes a difference in the way you and I today face challenges, struggles, trials, crises of all kinds. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to equip you to walk through every crisis, big or small, with a pure and solid faith in Jesus Christ. To do that, I want to show you from our passage three tools used by followers of Jesus in times of crisis. Tremendously practical today as we look at Christ, uh, his arrest, and his first trial. Follow along with me. Matthew 26, I'm going to start reading in verse 27. Remember, this scene opens still in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has finished praying, and he spotted his betrayer and the mob coming for him. So verse 47 While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that said it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, 
that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Man, it's a heavy passage. Uh, It is thick with emotion and Judas' betrayal, the disciples fleeing, the the abuse of Christ. It's a heavy, heavy passage. But brothers and sisters, I'm telling you right now, Jesus Christ is mighty and powerful through every step of this. And when you and I experience Christ, his death and resurrection by faith, his power is at our disposal. He makes a difference in the way you and I walk through our crises. So let me share with you three tools used by followers of Jesus in times of crisis. The first tool is this. Jesus' people trust a sneaky sovereignty. The people of Jesus, we, we trust in a sneaky sovereignty. This is one of our tools in times of crisis. So I've already articulated for you that one of the major themes in Matthew's account of the passion of Christ is Jesus' control. That control is on display from the very beginning of, of this whole story. Chapter 26, verse 2, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, here's, here's how things are going to play out. The Son of Man is going to be crucified. Jesus is in complete and total control this entire time. He's going to the cross. He knows this. And the cross is not an unfortunate accident. It's not some unforeseen disaster. It's the plan the entire time. And Jesus is on board with it all the way in total control to see himself to the cross. Here's our problem, though. Our problem is that the Jesus kind of sovereignty does not look like what we think sovereignty ought to look like. So put yourself in the disciples' sandals, the 11 there with Jesus on that night, and I want you to think about what their mindset must have been as they experienced all the things that went on. Uh, Whereas Jesus was in control and not panicked and not concerned, these guys were a hot mess because they didn't see any of this happening. They could not process it. And so here they are in the garden. One, they're sleepy. Two, they're emotionally frazzled. Jesus has dropped some heavy-hitting comments on them on this night. 
And then all of a sudden, here comes Judas with the brute squad, and you are shocked. Judas, no one saw this coming. Maybe he wasn't the most palatable of the 12. Maybe people didn't like to hang out with him as much. But none of the 11 saw Judas as the betrayer of Jesus. And here comes Judas with this mob of temple police, religious police, and he kisses Jesus in the dark so as to identify him as the one to be arrested. They were utterly shocked by that. Never saw it coming. Jesus is arrested. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't fight back. Doesn't call down fire from heaven. No miraculous escape. He allows himself to be bound. And he's going to go with his captors. Again, a stunning turn of events. They would not have expected this. It would have been a completely disorienting moment for these disciples. And so in the heat of the moment, one of the disciples, in a hot panic, pulls out his sword and just starts to hack and slash. And he chops off an ear. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who the disciple with the sword is. John's gospel does. He tells us this is Peter. And why does Peter chop off an ear? Because he's a fisherman, not a swordsman, that's why. In the dark, just ah! crazed panic. And the best he can do is hit an ear. Well, Jesus immediately rebukes Peter, verse 52. Look at it with me. Jesus shares this proverb. He says, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Peter's bravery is misplaced. This is not courage. This is, again, Peter attempting to get in the way of the cross. And Jesus' point is well made. There's always going to be someone with a bigger sword. Uh, There's going to be someone who can do more than cut off an ear. Besides that, I think to Jesus' point here, it's not the group with the most swords or the most ears that has control of the situation. At any moment, Jesus can call on his heavenly father, and he will have 12 legions of angels dispatched to him. One legion equals 24,000 bodies. 12 legions, you've got one Jesus, 11 disciples, one legion per member of this group. At any time, I can call on my heavenly father. These 12 legions would arrive, but he doesn't. Why? Because Jesus knows that our salvation requires him to go to the cross The will of the Father is more important than the comfort of the Son. This is what Jesus is in for. He's going all the way to the cross, and Jesus is in complete control of this scene. He goes with the mob, allows himself to be bound and arrested. He stands before his accusers in this mock trial, and he sits silent before them. And Jesus is in complete and total control. It's just not our brand of control. What do we expect when we pray to God and ask him to employ his sovereignty in a situation we're facing? What do we expect? We expect a voice, a sign, wonders, pyrotechnics, a talking animal. We expect God and his sovereignty to do something just, ah, and, and that urgency comes in our prayers Should we be shaken when God responds in silence? When we don't know the plan? When he doesn't get our permission? When he doesn't give us a deadline or a timeline for the way he's going to do things? Sometimes the sovereign is silent and still he is in control. His is a sneaky sort of sovereignty. I've used this term before. I love it. God is sovereign, and that's not dictated by him telling you what's going on or how it's going to take place. He's just sovereign, in control, powerful, omnipotent. All of that belongs to him. 
We often panic because God doesn't do things the way we want him to do it. And to be fair, we often face panic-inducing situations. But if God the Father gave God the Son as the sacrifice for our sins, won't he also care for us in every one of these other little situations? We don't have to know the plan to trust the plan maker. We don't have to hear the voice to know that we have a word. We don't have to know the timeline to to know how much endurance will be required of us. All that is there for you and I to do is to trust the God who loves us and gave his son and who is taking care of us. When we demand God to instruct us as to what his sovereign plans are. Well, friends, that's not sovereignty, and that's not faith. But when God is silent, it's okay. He's still present, and he loves you, and he is active, and he is working all things for his glory and our good. When Christians are in crisis, we can trust in this God of sneaky sovereignty. Second tool given to God's people in days of crisis, Jesus' people have a spoken anchor. The people of Jesus have a spoken anchor. What do I mean by a spoken anchor? Uh, I mean we've got this word that's been spoken to us, and it is an anchor for our souls in times of turmoil. We have a spoken anchor. Verses 53 through 56 highlight this for us. Twice in this encounter, Jesus references scriptures being fulfilled by what's happening in the scene. So first of all, in verse 54, after he scolded Peter and told him to put away his sword, Jesus then says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Peter, put that sword away. Scripture's already said. And we're going with what Scripture has said. Second time is in verse 56. After he gets done scolding Peter, he then turns to this mob that's come to arrest him. And he begins to scold these religious police uh, that have come out with clubs and swords against him. Jesus says, why this scene? You could have arrested me any time. I'm not hiding. I'm not hard to find. Every day I'm in the temple courts teaching. So I've got a schedule. Every day I'm in the temple courts. I'm in public. You'll be able to find me. I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm teaching. But now you come at me like I'm some sort of criminal, like I've broken laws. What does Jesus say in verse 56? But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. What prophets are fulfilled in the way Jesus uh, is arrested? Jesus doesn't give us reference. He doesn't give us a name. But the prophet Isaiah gives us some instructions on this. Um, Pete read earlier from Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that the suffering Messiah was numbered among transgressors. That means he's treated as a criminal. He's arrested as a criminal. He's killed like a criminal in the company of criminals on behalf of criminals that we might be declared innocent, righteous, and holy before a good and loving God. This is how salvation works. It's according to the word of God. At every step in this journey, uh, Jesus is anchored by Scripture. And I think you and I have something to learn here. If Jesus is rooted and anchored in the word of God, shouldn't you and I also be rooted in the word of God? Let's not miss this fact that in the previous scene, as Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus goes into that place in turmoil, emotional distress, and he's comforted how? With the will of God. 
Not my will, but your will be done. God's unfolding will is a comfort to Jesus at the thought of absorbing God's wrath for our sin. And how does Jesus articulate the will of God? How does he illuminate the will of God? In this scene that we've studied this morning, he does it by quoting Scripture. Not my will, but your will be done. The Scriptures have said this is the will of God. Now, so often you and I treat the will of God as something ethereal and mysterious. And the less time we spend in the Word, the more mysterious the will of God truly is. If we want to know the God who has rescued us from our sin, if we want to know the Son who laid down His life, if we want to understand the Spirit who dwells in us by faith, it comes by getting ourselves in front of this Word. If we will let God speak, then we're going to hear His voice and we'll know His will and direction for us. So you may come from a religious background in which the Scriptures are not held up as so important for knowing God or having an experience with God. And, and because of that, I'm glad you're here today because I want you to understand what we believe and what we practice as a church. We believe that this is the Word of God, His voice once spoken and still speaking. For us, we hear the voice of God through this word, it's, for us, the voice of God is not in the sacraments. It is not in the traditions. It's not even in what the clergy says or dictates. It's, it's from this word of God. Anything that I'm going to say up here or any of our pastors are going to say, we are bound to this word, to give only what this word says. And if we do not, we should not stand here and, and you shouldn't let us. We're bound to what this word says. And what we believe in our private lives as well is that we've got the ability to read this and understand it and and to interpret it and to apply it to our lives on our own. The Holy Spirit of God in you gives you the ability to read and understand and make sense of these things. Here's the problem. Reading the Bible is hard work. That's the problem. It's from a different culture, names that we don't recognize, uh, geographic markers that we can't make sense of, traditions that don't make sense, idioms that just don't click in our brains so easily, and it takes time. We live in a world where you can order pizza from your cell phone. How are we supposed to sit down and spend time actually reading and studying the Word of God? It's a challenge for us. It's anti-cultural, but it's what God's people must do. If Jesus is anchored by the Word of God, you and I must also be anchored in the Word of God. And if we will know the Word, then we will know the will of God. And I can tell you, not because I've got some special insight, but I can tell you a little bit about what God's will is for your life. It's that you would go and make disciples of all nations. It's that you would forgive those who have hurt you. Pray for your enemies. It's that you would show mercy as you've been given mercy. It's that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you would love your neighbor as yourself. This is the spoken will of God for us. And there is not one thing ethereal or mysterious about it. It is crystal clear. By God's grace, we have this word. And when we walk through times of crisis and times of trial, this spoken word is our sure anchor. We shouldn't study it just as a reactive measure. We ought to study it in the same way that we eat and drink. It is our daily nourishment. 
We've got to be in this word. It is an anchor for us. It is a sure tool for us in times of crisis. Jesus quotes Scripture, follows Scripture. You and I must also do the same. So what are the tools you and I use in times of crisis? We've got a Savior who is sovereign, though sometimes silent. We've got a spoken word of God right here. Third tool for God's people in times of trial. Jesus' people have an unshakable future. Jesus' people have an unshakable future. Verses 57 through 68, our next large scene in this passage, articulates this for us. Now, this scene requires some careful explanation. There's some terms here that you may not be familiar with, but if you will bear with me, I'll give you a quick synopsis, and it will help this this whole scene carry a bit more weight. So Jesus has been taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's brought to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas is a big dog. Even among the big dogs, he's the biggest of the big dogs. He's the high priest, the leading religious leader in Jerusalem. And he's put in that position, not by God, but by Rome. Rome, the the ruling empire over that part of the world and every part of the world around it, uh, has appointed Caiaphas as the ruler over uh, God's people there in that part of the world. So Caiaphas at his house, they bring Jesus to Caiaphas' house, and we're told also that Jesus meets in front of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin, big word, and it simply means this, it's the religious supreme court. So this is a serious time. These are the power brokers in Jerusalem that Jesus stands before on this night. Now, the Roman Empire had a unique philosophy about how to govern its territories on the fringes of the empire. What they did was they allowed local power structures to remain intact. So although Rome has no understanding of what it means to be Jewish or who Yahweh is or what the temple is, any of that, still they allow this religious power system to stay intact. But here's how Rome keeps accountability on it. They decide who's in charge. That's Caiaphas. They also hold close to the vest the death penalty. They're not going to let local power structures decide who lives and dies. Because what if that local power structure decides to begin dispatching everyone who is loyal to Rome? That would be bad news for Rome. So if a local power structure came across a case where someone had committed a crime against the empire, they could turn that person over to Roman authorities, and then the Roman authorities could dictate whether this person lived or died. Now, make no mistake... Caiaphas and his cronies are not interested in justice on this night. They want death. The verdict is already settled in their minds. This is a kangaroo court. Nothing about it is legal or proper according to the rules of the day. All they're looking for is that one thing they can use against Jesus when they take him to the Roman authorities to get him executed. So everything in this scene is wrong. Several things highlight how improper the trial is. First, it shouldn't have been held on the night before a holiday. You'll remember this is Passover season. Second, the accused in these situations is uh, allowed certain rights, all of which are denied to Jesus. Uh, Another situation here is that Matthew tells us the religious authorities actively seek false witnesses. They find me the best liar among us so we can pin some charges against Jesus. And then plus the the simple fact that they want Jesus dead for claiming to be the Messiah is just nonsense. It's not a crime, nonetheless a capital, capital crime, that's hard to say, to claim to be the Messiah. That's not a crime at all. 
Jews anticipated the arrival of the Messiah. If they dispatched everyone who said they were the Messiah, then there would be no Messiah one of these days. So what they do is they begin to beat the bushes and look for people who have accusations against Jesus. Finally, a false accusation is made. Uh, some person, two people say, well, this guy said if he, if he would tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days. Now, Jesus did say that. He didn't say it in Matthew's gospel, but John chapter 2 records Jesus saying this. But John also gives us this commentary that when Jesus said, if you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days, he wasn't talking about brick and mortar. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the kind of death he would die and the kind of resurrection that would come after his death. So here's the accusation. Caiaphas, in a hot rage, confronts Jesus with this. What what do you have to say, and how does Jesus respond? In verse 63, Jesus remained silent. Caiaphas can't handle this. And so he puts Jesus on oath. I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus responds, yes, it is as you say. This is careful wordplay on Jesus' part. When Caiaphas says, are you the Messiah, Caiaphas has a definition, an idea of what Messiah means. So is Jesus the Caiaphas type of Messiah? No. Is he Messiah? Yes. Jesus' answer then is, hey, Caiaphas, you said it. Whatever you say, that's what we'll go with. Sure. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 64. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when I read those words, I didn't hear anyone in this room gasp. But it throws Caiaphas into a fit of rage. And with a little bit of understanding, you and I will understand the nuclear impact of what Jesus has just said to this court. Jesus has quoted two verses of Scripture. In his statement, there are three lines. The first and the third line come from Daniel chapter 7. The middle line comes from Psalms 110 verse 1. Let me explain to you what Jesus has said and will feel the impact of this statement. His middle line. Jesus says in his middle line, uh, first of all, he says, you'll see the Son of Man, here's the line, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. That's the line that comes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1 says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, Caiaphas and his guys, they know the Scriptures. They know these quotations, what they mean in their context. So when Jesus says, I'm sitting at the right hand, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, he says something about himself. He is the divine one who has all power, all might, all ability. He's the right judge of mankind. And if Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One in Psalm 110, then who is Caiaphas and his guys? They are the enemies who will be made into an Ottoman. This is is the middle of that sandwich, Psalm 110. Daniel chapter 7 gives Jesus the words for the first line and, and the third line. So Jesus says, first you'll see the Son of Man. And then that last line is coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel chapter 7 is a beefy and at times a terrifying passage of Scripture. It describes 
ruler after ruler who is beastly in their appearance. And then there's one ruler who follows all these other beastly rulers who's the worst of them all. It's several verses about how these earthly rulers torment God's people, how they are oppressive to the innocent, how they are completely awful in the way they dispatch their duties. But then chapter 7 turns, and there's one called the Ancient of Days who comes in and with a tiny flick dispatches these beastly rulers. And then Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. There's the line. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, he is saying this about himself. I'm the one that the Ancient of Days lifts up, that all glory, all praise goes to, all sovereign power is mine. Every nation, every people on earth will come and worship and glorify me. This is what Jesus says in this tiny little room in Caiaphas's house. So in verse 64, Jesus essentially has said this to the immediate authorities. You think you're going to judge me? I've got some news for you. I am the God-man, and one day you enemies of God will face my righteous, eternal judgment. But Jesus speaks in two directions here. First, he speaks to the people immediately in the room, the power structures at hand in this scene. But Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 are not written just for the sake of the bad guys in that room on that night. It is written for every power that is against God, every ruler that raises against him and puts down his people. Jesus is saying not only will he dispatch this tiny riffraff, but he will put down every beastly ruler, every enemy of God that preys upon God's people, every Herod, every Nero, every Hitler, every Stalin, every Pol Pot, every Idi Amin, and every Kim Jong-un will be utterly crushed under the righteous judgment of Jesus Christ. And after these enemies of God are turned into furniture... A new day will begin in which all nations and all people of every language will worship Jesus forever in his kingdom that will never end. The beasts he will put down and his people he will raise up. You can take verse 64 into the pit with you. Jesus, Jesus is speaking power into corruption. He is speaking sovereign, omnipotent might for a people who are crushed under the weight of sin, for who every crisis is too much for us. When you and I read verse 64, it's time to put down the Bible and start to worship and run a victory lap and look at our situations in a very different way. Those who follow Jesus have an unshakable future that informs our shaky presence, that Jesus is coming that he is crushing sin and iniquity, that he is raising up his people in that kingdom that lasts forever, that makes a difference on this day for you and I. And I can tell you this, what little I know of our church's history, that's how we've operated in times of crisis. This church has times where it's been on shaky ground. Crisis has risen. Hearts have been broken. Bad things have happened. 
or just sadness has come in transitions. But as I've heard these stories told, one thing I've been impressed with time and time again is that this is a church that has trusted in God's unshakable future in some very shaky times. God's in control of this moment and every moment. Peace and order is not the sign of God's presence against chaos and turmoil. But God meets us in the brokenness, the brokenness inside our tiny rooms, the brokenness in our big rooms. And there the sovereign God of creation reigns supreme. So, people of Jesus, we've got some tools at our disposal. Since Christ goes to the cross, dies, raises again, God the Holy Spirit is with us. We've got some tools at our disposal in crisis. We have his sneaky sovereignty. That's just true of God. We have his spoken word as a precious gift to us to spend time in, to study and read, to know his will. And we have the certainty of our future with him. Those things make a difference. Who knows what Monday has in store for us or Sunday afternoon. But these truths make a difference for us in the way that we face these situations. I told you at the start of my sermon about the martyrdom of John and Betty Stamm in 1934, but I didn't tell you the whole story. After John and Betty uh, were executed and the soldiers moved on to the next town, um, there was a Christian villager among the witnesses that day, a man who had come to faith through John's ministry and who was a worker alongside John and Betty. And he knew the baby had to be somewhere, but he didn't know where the baby was. So he retraced the steps of the soldiers. He went back to the house and he found three-month-old baby Helen sleeping soundly, wrapped up in the blankets, perfectly safe and fine in this room. Inside her blankets, um, Betty had stuffed all the money they had to help provide some care for the baby. And then that night, before they were led to their death, John sat down and wrote a letter. Stuffed that letter in his uh, baby girl's blanket. And here's part of what the letter said. He's speaking to his brothers and sisters back at the, the missionary agency. And he said, Dear brethren... My wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of communists. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. All our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what you do. As, and as for us, fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. The Lord bless and guide you. And as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. What is it that steadies us in every trial? It's only trust in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. So have you turned to Christ? Is he more than a teacher, more than some moral guide, more than some fuzzy idea? Have you turned in trust to Jesus Christ to rescue you from the penalty of your sin that he would drink that poison cup all the way down on your behalf and in its place give you the cup of blessing. If you're not a follower of Christ, today might be the right time for a conversation. To start a conversation, continue a conversation, or maybe bring a conversation to a climax in which we talk about what it means to be a follower of his and consider all that God's been doing in your life.
And to you, brother and sister Christian, you and I, after we read this passage and we see the strength and might and steadiness of Jesus, we have, we have nothing to fear, not a thing. We have no reason to panic, no reason to walk in terror. God the Son has made a way for us. God the Father has ordered our steps. God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The old preacher Charles Spurgeon asked this question, what more could you possibly need with omnipotence on your side? May we be the kinds of people who walk with Jesus in trust and praise, whether by life or by death. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, help us to see this passage right, to see Jesus not as some unwitting victim, as some leader who was outsmarted, but as the sovereign one in complete control, who did all that was necessary to bring salvation to us. Thank you that he was numbered among transgressors for the sake of transgressors. Thank you that he laid down his life willingly, gave his body, spilled his blood, so that the price our salvation requires could be paid. And God, I lift up any of my friends in here that are on a faith journey right now. They're not followers of yours, but Lord, who knows where they are in this process? You know. So God, I pray that this morning you've given them eyes to see you in all of your love, in all of your might, in all of your ability. And God, I pray that you would draw them close to you and awaken faith in them this morning. Lord, for my brothers and sisters, As we prayed earlier, we carry all kinds of fears and worries and scars with us every day. But Lord, let us walk in the assurance that you are in complete and total good control. Lord, your word is guiding us and our future is certain because of what Christ has achieved in his death and resurrection. Let that color the way we love our neighbors. Let that color the way we guide the hurting and the broken. Let that color the way we give aid to everyone in need. Father, let that color the way we sit in silence by ourselves as we consider the course of our lives, the uncertainty ahead, the difficulties behind. Lord, let us be a people who walk in praise, knowing that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the Mighty One. And we're going to see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Father, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.